welcome to Sweet Tea and Coffee. My name is Blake Russell, and I'm sitting across from our co-host for the season, John James. Say hello, John. It's great to be here. I'm enjoying my coffee today out of my classic Spider-Man mug. Spider-Man mug. I'm excited about the new movie, but I'm more excited about today's podcast. See, I didn't even know there was a new movie. Is there any movie? I can teach you John, the ways. John keeps me up to date on all these uh, superhero movies because I just haven't been keeping up with it at all. Um, but hey, this is going to be a good episode today. We have a very special guest with us, Mr. Stephen Shrewsbury, and we are excited to get to know him today. And uh, you ready? Let's do it. All right. Right. Well, like I said, we have Stephen Shrewsbury in, uh, can we say the studio? We've got it in the studio. The it studio. looks like a studio in here now. I've, I've got some more recording equipment and mics are all over the place. So I think we can we can call it a, a studio. Let's do it. Not the studio because we have a different room in this building that's called the studio that makes no sense. But we've got Stephen in a studio today and uh, we're going to get to know Stephen. Uh, how, how long have you been at Fredonia Hill now? Not uh, long. We came about... 15 months ago or so, okay. I think, was when we first started to attend. Very well, cool. Yeah, what I love is that you guys have, and you came in a crazy time, an odd time, to come join. As soon as church. we could get back in person, we were... You were here. We were here. And, yeah. and that's what I loved about you guys is that you've been jumping in and 100% since since you've been here. That's That's been great. Well, it's the habit we developed over many, many years of military service. We would jump from assignment to assignment to assignment every right. two to three years for t- almost I was a military officer for 30 years yeah. and so when we would uh, get to a new place you didn't have any time to yeah. spend a year a year and a half surveying the church Shopping. figuring yeah. out <laughs> uh well what how will I fit in you just you had to get jump in if you didn't jump in you didn't get involved well that's that's interesting like and, and you already we're just gonna go straight into it because you already mentioned it I, I am a uh, a huge history nut, and because of that, I have military history is like my thing. I love military history, and um, so I I saw that you were retired from the Air Force, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a lot of fun for me, just to kind of hear some of of what you did. So you retired as a lieutenant colonel, right? No, I was a full colonel. Oh, you were full colonel. Yeah, I okay. was even what they would call an old colonel. Wow. I was a colonel for a long time. Wow. And the younger colonels wanted me to get out of the way. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, get this guy out of the way so we right, can have right. some more space. Yeah. So, well, okay, well, tell me about your your journey into the in the military. How did you end up in the service? I uh, grew up in the in the Denver area, and it was in the early '80s when I graduated from college. I was uh, started out trying to become a professional airline pilot. Okay, and uh, went through some flight training and realized very quickly that the cost at that time, and uh, the pay of a pilot at that time was very, very low. Hmm. It's nothing like today's like economy, yeah. where anybody can, you can get a job today and uh, pretty easily, and if you wanted to be a pilot today, you'd have a, a future career instantly. But back then, it was rough. Yeah. So I just simply couldn't get a job in my field. And so I was just walking down uh, a hallway in a building one day, and I saw a poster. And it was for the Navy, actually. Hmm. And they had a job called a supply officer. And I thought, okay, I'm desperate. I'm going to do something. Right. 
and I went and tested uh, for the Navy and did well, and and I was close to applying for the Navy, and I saw this other poster for the Air Force, and they had a lot of other jobs, and I said, those jobs sound more interesting, Yeah, and I don't really want to spend eight months on ships, which yeah. they'd started doing back in uh, that time frame. Uh, Ronald Reagan was still president mm-hmm. back then. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. And uh, so I applied for the Air Force and was accepted. So I didn't come into the service until I was 25 years old. Okay. So you, did you come in as an officer? or, or Yeah, I went to officer training okay. school in San yes. Antonio, first okay. time in Texas yeah. at that time, and uh, uh, did my officer training and then was commissioned and went to my first duty station, which was in Panama City, Florida, at a place called Tyndall Air Force Base. Okay. Yeah, my uh, my uh, sister in law and brother in law both they, they they're married. <laughs> um, they were both in the the Air Force for a long time, so I'm kind of familiar with the Air Force. Does seem to have a lot of different places, uh, specialties, I guess, for you to to kind of explore and, and serve in. They I think they were both um, aerospace physiologists or something. Mm-hmm. I'm I hope I'm saying that correctly. But they um, they worked with. Uh, U uh, two pilots and got them ready for, you know. Yeah, I know altitude. exactly what that position is. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that was that's what they did. Um, okay, so but you mentioned you're you're an attorney, right? I started out as a fighter controller. Okay, um, and that's what my wife uh, did. I met her at Tyndall Air Force Base. Okay. She was also a controller. She did air defense controlling. I did fighter controlling uh we were testing air-to-air weapons okay so fighter pilots would take off with weapons and then we would uh control them to um set up weapons tests for the web for that and then we also would control them for air-to-air combat uh encounters that they would practice with each other for uh combat training i did that for about uh five years and about three years into it I had heard about an Air Force program that would allow you to switch your career to the JAG. Okay. And which is the lawyer part of the yeah. Air Force. Yeah. I mean, that and, was uh, uh, that was real popular back in the 90s with the TV show, the yep, JAG. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did everything. Yeah. Now, we I never I never did secret missions on submarines. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They sure. probably added yeah, a little that, bit more to that. To yeah. That that was <laughs> one, nothing I had a chance to do. So. Um, so I spent three years, actually, three times I tried to uh, apply for that program. I was turned down a couple times, and on the third and last opportunity, um, uh, I was accepted. Awesome. And so I uh, transferred over to law school. Got I, I uh, married Lori at that time, uh, just before I uh, left Tyndall Air Force Base, and uh, I went to Salt Lake City to start a law degree at the University of Utah. Okay. So you talk about getting your law degree in Utah. Did you already have your undergrad when you first joined the Air Force? I did, yep. I had uh, received my undergrad degree about three years prior, actually. It was just three difficult years of not being able to to find work. Yeah. Um, It was just a very different type of economy back then. Where'd you go for your undergrad? I went to a school called Metropolitan State College of uh, Denver, now Metropolitan State University. Very large totally urban. It's in downtown Denver. So his university had no fraternities, sororities, right. no sports teams. Just, it was pure education. Right. And it was very inexpensive. My, my tuition my tuition was five hundred dollars a semester. Yep. Sign me up. Yeah, that's, that's what I want. Incredible. <laughs> so Denver in a lot of ways, would you say Denver feels like home for you or You've traveled so much, and you've relocated so often. 
Uh, I call Denver home, although I didn't move there till I was 10 years old. My my family background is very, very unusual. Um, I lived all over as a young child. Hmm. Um, I was born in Salt Lake City. My father uh, was a Mormon fundamentalist. Wow. And so I grew up in a fundamentalist family. And what I mean by that is there was polygamy involved. Sure. Wow. And uh, not in my, own, in my own family directly, no, but all around You knew us. people around, yeah. Sure. My uncles uh, uh, had more than one wife. And, and fundamental Mormonism, we could spend all day talking about fundamental Mormonism, but essentially... The reason they're called fundamentalists and broke they broke away from the main Mormon church, mm-hmm. the LDS church, is because there was somebody in whatever group, there was a whole bunch of these groups that felt that they were really the true prophet. The Mormon church is uh, headed okay. by a prophet. Yeah. yeah. And they felt that wasn't the true that person wasn't the true prophet. They were the true prophet. And um, in my group there was a a, a guy who was running um, uh, our group called uh, Joel, his name was Joel LeBaron. Um, LeBaron is a f- well-known name in the fundamentalist world, and uh, and he had a, a polygamy colony that he had built down in uh, northern Mexico in the Chihuahua area mm. um, called Colonial LeBaron. And this was a small community of polygamists um, that uh, belonged to his particular sector group. Wow. So when I was three, we moved down there for the first time, and we lived there a few months, maybe a year. Uh, we moved from there. We, My dad tried logging uh, mm-hmm. trees and almost got himself killed. That quit that. He, we ended up in Washington State. He was um, went into drywall with two of his brothers. So we lived in Washington State for a few years. Then we moved back down to the polygamy colony when I was nine. Wow. And we were there about a year. And when I was 10, we moved to Denver and we left that group. And the reason we left is my dad had become a Scientologist at that time. Wow. And so I quickly moved into that. I became a Scientologist at the age of 11. Crazy. And I did that for five years quite seriously. Um, and I know it sounds a little nutty. You think about 11 year old, I, I can't even imagine it now, but, but Scientology theory, that's a whole nother story, but everybody is billions of years old in Scientology theory Mm. because it's a reincarnation religion. And so I didn't get treated like an 11 year old. And I always was one of those kids that liked to hang with Right. One the of those old, weird kids yeah. like to hang with yeah. the adults uh, and that stuff. That was kind of that and, way, too. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, it was a way for me to do it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I I actually uh, quit school. I quit. I never went to the fifth grade. I uh, spent one year uh, working down at a Scientology mission in downtown Denver. Wow. And for the fifth grade. And uh, uh, after sixth grade, I uh, didn't go to seventh grade. I was sent to L.A., with that. <clears throat> when I say I was sent to L.A., I meant I was sent there. My parents didn't come. I went to live uh, in, in uh, L.A. in a uh, Scientology hotel that still exists down there huh. called the Celebrity Center, uh, where all writ- the wealthy Scientologists right, yeah. would live. And I went to live with a, 
friend of my mom's who had uh, a lot of money, and she was also a Scientologist going through some training there. So I spent uh, several months going through um, what was called auditing training, basically Scientology training. And uh, uh, after I uh, got through th- with that course, I wanted to stay in L.A. and keep keep going. Yeah. But the Scientology mission here in Denver called me back. So I went back, and uh, my parents You're were— about def- eighth grade when you go back, or— I go back. I'm still—this is the spring of my—would se- have been the spring of my seventh grade year. So I go back, um, and my—within a couple of months, my parents uh, announced they were getting divorced, and I'm the oldest of seven children. So my dad and three uh, my three uh, old, the three older uh, boys including me went down to Colorado Springs my mom with the four younger stayed in Denver and so I continued uh, working at the Scientology um, mission in Colorado Springs when I was in the ninth grade I also skipped the eighth grade completely <laughs> I didn't go to most of seventh grade well, I didn't go to fifth grade and I didn't go to eighth grade I've all. been in eighth grade and it's overrated. Yeah, yeah, so, you, yeah. you probably right. didn't right. miss much. Yeah, I don't, that's what I hear. <laughs> okay, so. so, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but I mean, so it seems like you were pretty deep in all of this. How how did that transition out of that happen? Well, the you know, psychology is an interesting thing. You you start to realize um, as you get older if you had some issues with your child in terms of your unhappiness or level of happiness, when you're a child, sometimes you don't even know if you're unhappy. Right. I mean, you know you are, but you don't really know that there's another way. Yeah, yeah. And I was a fairly unhappy uh, child. And so I found myself in the ninth grade. Um, you, I was school, and then I would go, we would actually drive to Colorado Springs, and for several months, we would drive from Colorado Springs up to Denver every night Wow! to work at the Scientology mission in Denver, and it was exhausting. Mm-hmm. And I became disillusioned with the whole idea of Scientology. It became very real to me that it wasn't very real. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted out. I just wanted out of the whole thing. And so at 16, uh, I left Colorado Springs, moved out from my, uh, from my dad's place, and I moved in with my mom up in Denver. She had escaped. She was also a Scientologist for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And she had left uh, Scientology had a couple of years before that. And so I said, I want a normal life. Yeah. I just want to be a normal kid. And so I went up to Denver, and that's where I started high school. Well... Let's go back a little bit, because uh, I'm curious. Being in so ingrained in the Scientology community, you talked about making treks from Colorado to Denver every night. Um, what was it like to actually be a part of that community as as a young teenager? Like, what were some of the practices that you found yourself doing? Was it just a lot of you know, of, of information that was given to you, and that you just participated in teaching, or what was that like to be a part of that community? It was, well, Scientology is a cult. That's right. 100%. Yeah. So, you know, I, I uh, as a Sunday school teacher, I've, I've taught on the quasi-Christian religions for years and years. And, of course, Scientology is one that I touch on because it's not a quasi-Christian religion, but it's one I touch on because it's the epitome of a cult. It has all the indices of what hmm. a cult is. And 
So it's far more than just the 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 theory or the training. It's it's the envelopment of cult behavior. The uh, cult uh, type group will always feel that it's us against them. That's mm-hmm. one of the fu- fundamental right. uh, principles. Uh, cults tend to use their own language. Cult speak, I call it. Um, and Scientology had its own its own language. It had its own um, uh, ideas about what human perfection was and how to achieve human perfection. And human perfection was achieved through what was called the auditing process, which is what I had trained to do in Mm. uh, L.A. And this auditing process basically involved um, sitting with an auditing counselor, we called an auditor, and that auditor would go through through these processes to try to get the the, um, auditee to um, remember their past lives. Hmm. And then remember bad things that would happen in their past lives. And, oh, and then they would have, um, this would result in what Scientologists would call a cognition. And what I mean by that is you'd, you'd realize, oh, my problem with uh, my bad knee or my problem with being angry today is caused because of some incident that happened, you know, 55 yeah. lifetimes ago or something like that. And uh, so, it, and this process is very, very long. In Scientology, I mean, it can take years to get through the process. It's one of the most expensive religions in the world. It's about three hundred thousand dollars now to go from from the entry level all the way to the top. Um, wow! And uh, so, in order to who can afford three hundred thousand? Most people don't have that kind of money. Yeah. So the way Scientology would uh, help get people involved was they would have people come to work for Scientology and then they would uh, give those people their auditing for free. And that mm. was the hook. And so you didn't get paid much. I, I think we, we were paid less than minimum wage uh, right. to work there. So Right. That's really interesting. So in the midst of, I guess, you growing up, you're piecing things together, some from... Mormonism, some from Scientology, some from just the world and the culture around you. And in the midst of that, you kind of came to the conclusion, you know, Scientology is clearly, um, there's nothing here. There's, there's no truth to it. Um, and so you have a really different experience of coming to a reality of knowing Christ and knowing what that reality looks like. And, you know, as you began to piece all that together, what was it like for you on that journey to, of exploring um, truth and, and figuring out what's really truth here, because so many people are telling me different things. That's a great question. <clears throat> after Scientology, after I left um, Scientology, I, I, I swore off religion, totally. I can imagine. I yeah, absolutely I, it hated sense. it. Yeah. Um, and I had nothing to do with it for uh, quite a few years. Um, I didn't really give religion much thought at all. It was a non-issue for me. Uh, my my religion, if you want to call it that, became education. Hmm. Education became the way for me to right. escape my circumstances, and I became very focused. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college. I was the first one to do that because I felt it was the way uh, to escape. Yeah, and um, the Air Force was part of that process. Mm-hmm. I realized I wasn't getting anywhere in Denver, and I. I said, I've got to get out. I've got to escape. And so in many ways, the Air Force was a lifesaver for me. 
Uh, it was the first time I had a job that I enjoyed. I still had nothing to do with religion at that time. Right. Um, and moved to Florida and was beginning to have a successful career at that time. Uh, and several years later, maybe four, three or four years later, probably about four years after I got to uh, Tyndall Air Force Base, I realized that there was the, there that there were still holes. There was something yeah, wrong. It still wasn't adding up. Yeah. And you know, I was in my late twenties by then. Um, I had had a series of girlfriends. Some I fell in love with. They didn't fell, love me. Yeah. Others, lo- they loved me. I didn't fall in love with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that type of drill. And I became very frustrated because I was at this time 29 and I just couldn't figure out what to do about this love thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to a bookstore in Panama City. Uh, and I said, well, what do you got to do when you need to fix your love life? You go get a self-help book. <laughs> yeah. So I walked into the bookstore, and uh, I saw this book called The Road Less pa- Traveled. Now, The Road Less Traveled was a well-known uh, Christian book in the 70s. I didn't know that at that time. But it was split into three parts, and the first part was called Love, the, the whole section Love. Yeah. And I said, okay, it's a good place this to start. sounds good. Yeah. I'm getting this book. <laughs> so I, I read this book. Well, the last third of the book, I don't even remember what the middle third of the book was, but the last third of the book was entitled Grace. And so I read that, and I went, that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. And I just started to realize that I was realizing something. And, of course, that was the Holy Spirit. Um wooing me, yeah. opening my yeah. eyes a little bit. Um, and uh, not very long after that, I was set up essentially on a blind date with my now wife. Um, and my wife was a born and raised Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. And I didn't date church girls. Yeah. I just, I didn't date church girls. Um, but we were set up on a blind date and we really got along well together. Um, and... So I asked her if she would go with me because I thought, oh, I'm going to try out some of these church things and see what they are. So I don't know how a Southern Baptist ever brought herself to do this, but <laughs> she went with me to the Presbyterian Church, and we went to the Methodist Church, and I think a couple other denominations. I mean, she must have really cared about you to, to explore that with yeah, you. Yeah, she was crazy about me. Yeah. No, I, don't, like. <laughs> I, I really don't know... Um, why she was doing this, but yeah. she did, and she knew I was searching. I, you yeah. got to keep in mind, I knew zero, yeah, about Christianity. So you're 29 at this point, right? Yes, and you swore off religion at the age of 13. No, it was uh, 16. 16. So mm-hmm. this is 13 years. Yes, of I don't want to touch it. Uh, I want nothing to do with it. Uh, probably even a hardening of your heart toward it. I would. Definitely yeah. mm-hmm. believe so. And in the midst of that, a Christian book and a Southern Baptist girl allow you to, I guess, begin the process. God uses those things, right? He right. said he, right. he wooed you. Um, we love to see God's pursuit of us, and you're clearly articulating that. And, and so in the midst of all of that, like your heart is beginning to be interested 
did you find yourself kind of going, what, what am I doing here? Why am I intrigued by this? Like, I don't really remember, um, asking myself, you know, why am I doing this? Am I nuts? You know, that mm-hmm. sort of reaction. I just was very interested. Mm. And so ultimately we, uh, in the church trying out thing, uh, I said, well, let's try out this Southern Baptist church, right? Um, and this Southern Baptist church, uh, down the road from the apartment I lived in and I really liked it. Hmm. Um, and so I started to go to the church with, uh, Lori, who I was dating at that time. Lori's my wife. And, um, and we, uh, we're going there fairly regularly, no Sunday school, anything like that. I didn't want to get involved in any of that stuff. Um, but I was really seeing and, and seeing a, a different way, seeing something new. Um, and this went on for a number of months. I started dating my wife in September. And this, I uh, accepted the Lord. I finally surrendered and, and gave up. It was the following May hmm. uh, that I did that, and uh, so this wasn't a short process. Yeah. I was a very hardened individual, yeah. Um, and that that hardness uh, had to be softened quite a bit. You know, you say it wasn't a short process, but I also feel like, considering the circumstances, that seems remarkably quick. <laughs> yeah. To just what is that? <laughs> eight months? Yeah. You, you go from where you were. Um, I mean, that's phenomenal just to hear God's pursuit of you and. And how that church played that role. Uh, so, what was that like for you internally as you began to process? Uh, I believe in Jesus. Uh, I believe in salvation. And like, what was that like for you? Well, it's almost a little bit tough to remember. Um, I just remember when I would hear preaching from the, particularly from the New Testament and from the Gospels. Um, it was just the compassion that Jesus had hmm. and the the care that he had uh, was just so attractive. It was just hmm. so beautiful. And I, my wife tells me now um, for several weeks uh, prior to May of 1992, which was the uh, month that I accepted the Lord, month and year I accepted the Lord, she said I was, I was squishing the pew. Okay, so in, in, in the old Southern Baptist, yeah. we had an invitation, we had pews, you'd stand mm-hmm. up, and, and she said, I was gripping the back of the pew in front it's of like me. like you're holding on for and dear life. I was life. holding on, right. <laughs> She's literally said that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just, one, one Sunday, uh, the uh, pastor was preaching on uh, this uh, incident where Jesus is walking through a crowd and the woman with the bleeding issue touches the hem of his garment uh, and um, he feels power uh, leaving mm. him and he uh, has a discussion with her and, and that compassion and love that he showed to that woman and, and the idea that she could have healing and, and a future because she exercised and had faith and believed right. who he was, who he said he was, and that was it. I was like, sh- my wife says I was shaking, holding the back of that pew, and I said, "That's it." Wow. And I, I walked up. And I said, "That's that's it," and I've never looked back. Well, that's incredible. So uh, 
you you spent many years in uh, the military, mm-hmm. and my next question is, how in the world did you end up here in Nacogdoches? We had uh, spent. I spent the first fifteen years or so um, in the United States okay. and. Uh, in the Air Force, I mean, the military services are outstanding educational yeah, yeah. organizations. They train internally, and, um, and I, I don't know why more um, young people don't consider the military. Yeah. I really don't understand it because it's such a fantastic opportunity. I suspect it's because the wars and yeah. PTSD and some of the rough stuff, and I get that. Um but for us, the Air Force had yet another program. After I'd been a lawyer for a few years, I was prosecuting criminal cases. And um, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not having fun prosecuting cases. I'm tired of being around criminal behavior. I don't yeah. want to look at things anymore. I was prosecuting child pornography yeah. cases. It's just and negativity. I just didn't just, want to, yeah. yeah. I just didn't want to be yeah. around it. And, um, so the Air Force had a Master of Law program uh, where they would send uh, senior colonels or junior majors, and I was a major at that time, mm-hmm. uh, to a school in Virginia at the University of Virginia. It's called the Army uh, Judge Advocate General School to get a Master of Law in something. And I wanted to get a Master of Law in international law. I thought that'd be fun. Yeah. And uh, so I was selected in my last year, again, my last year of eligibility. <laughs> so I was the oldest um, student in our Air Force class, or was it a class of only 10. I was the most senior student there and uh, spent a year getting an LLM uh, full-time, going full-time, being paid by the Air Force to get wow. an advanced degree. And then I decided, hey, why don't we go to an embassy, um, do something interesting, and uh uh, the Air Force had a short notice assignment in Athens, Greece. Um, and so uh, Lori and I, we didn't have, we'd been married 10 years by now, and yeah. we still had no children, but we had decided that this was the right time. Right. And so while I was in school, um, Lori was pregnant, and uh, our, da- our first daughter, Caitlin, was born mm-hmm. in uh, Charlottesville. And uh, within a couple of months, we. Went from Charlottesville to Washington. Uh, I had to do some a lot of anti-terrorism training. I had yeah. to train in the, the Greek language and do some other things to get ready for um, Athens, which was a very high uh, terrorist threat area at right. that time. Yeah, and we moved to Athens, and we never came back to the United States. So that's wow. a long. We we did not come back. We were in Athens, then we went to Guam, and then we went to Stuttgart, Germany, wow. and then we went to Honolulu. That was a That's... terrible place to live. <laughs> then we went to uh, Tokyo, Japan for yeah. three years, and then we went to an uh, air base near um, Cambridge in the UK. Okay. And that's where we were living uh, when I had to retire. Okay. So the long answer is I needed something to do. <laughs> and I did not want to go back to work as a civilian in the government. Right. And I'd always enjoyed teaching. I, I mean, I started doing that when I was 11 years old as a Scientologist. Um, and I thought, well, this might be interesting. Yeah. And so I just started looking around for teaching jobs uh, at a university where they were looking for uh, lawyers, JDs, not, not a PhD, but a JD, right. which is a Juris Doctorate degree. 
And uh, there were not many, but there was this one university, and I'd never heard of it in this town. I'd never heard of. Um, and I, I, and they were looking for a lawyer who had international law experience. Well, there you go. Um, and uh, I, I said okay, and I applied for that job and got a reply right away. Um, and they asked if they could interview me. This was my now employer, mm-hmm. Stephen F. Austin. And so they interviewed me in, uh, by phone in England for about an hour wow. and a half because I was a very unusual candidate to teach Absolutely. at a university. Yeah. They interviewed me for an hour and a half. Um, I retired. My wife and I and, uh, had two kids at the time, and uh, we left in the spring of 17, and we went to Florida. Um, to live because we had no place to live. We didn't know where to live in the United States. So we moved to central Florida, that area where my uh, wife Lori grew up. Okay. It was also a cheap place to live um, uh, that we could stay until we figure out where right. I could get a job. Yeah. And after I arrived in Florida, um, the university here, Stephen F. Austin, called me, said, we want you to come out, fly out for an interview. And so Lori and I flew out here. Um in uh i think it was may okay may of 17 we flew out here and we went through the interview process here and uh and i gotta quit doing that clicking with my lip <laughs> yeah that same problem that's, don't the, I? that's the john james <laughs> signature right there and um so we interviewed it went very well yeah um and uh there was a hiring freeze at stephen f austin that time so i had to wait a few more weeks after that not knowing if I would get that thing to work out, yeah. yeah, get the job, and um, late May, maybe early June, I received a phone call asking if I would like the position, and I said sure. So we moved here in August of seventeen, and we've been here ever since. That's how we ended up in this town called Nacogdoches. Wow, that's no no that's roots, pretty, no connection to right, Texas yeah. at all. I, that always that always intrigues me because I mean my my roots go really deep here. I mean, and that's my family's been here since the. 1800s, you know, so it's like when I ask that question, I'm I'm truly interested in how people end up in this little town tucked away in the piney woods of East Texas, and so and, and knowing your background of being all over the world, it's really really neat to see. Oh, that. and just even to think about you've in, encountered so many different cultures in the places that you've lived in the in the way of life, and then all of a sudden you end up in deep East Texas with good old East Texas boys mm-hmm. like Blake's family. Yeah. Uh, what was, do you feel like uh, there was a little bit of culture shock when you came here or you just felt like, well, you know, just just add a different, one more culture to the list that I've interacted with or. It wasn't really culture shock just because I'd been exposed to, we'd lived in uh, South Carolina and okay. oh, sure. Panama city, which is really the South right. of yeah. Florida and, uh, and of course many cultures. And so there wasn't so much a culture shock. I, I really knew what to expect. But it was very important for my kids. My kids were are, were teenagers. They're still teenagers, and uh, they had never lived in the United States, not other than visiting Denver and Florida, and That's that crazy. was it. They'd yeah. never seen anything in the United States, and they were very tired of moving and very tired of changing schools. And so, I made a, a agreement with my wife that we were. We're going to settle someplace, and we were going to allow our kids to go to high school the whole time because mm-hmm. that was very important to me. Uh, after I escaped from Scientology, that became a very important thing to me to be able to go to one high school. Yeah. 
Um, and so we decided no matter what we did, we, we would do this and allow the kids to, to settle in and begin to travel, uh, around the United States and show our kids the country that they're, the, yeah, uh, they're, they're from. A, they that's just incredible to think about. In, yeah. It's like their entire lives, they they just didn't really know much of of the United States. Very, very little of it. Yeah, yeah that's that's crazy. So you, you have a long list of places that you guys lived. Is there any one particular place that you enjoyed the most or, or liked the most or anything? Nacogdoches. Uh, other than, <laughs> than Nacogdoches, yeah. yeah. We do love Nacogdoches. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll get back to the original question. Yeah. But I will. So we love Nacogdoches. When we were interviewing for our job here, we talked to people and we would talk to young people who said, uh, I love it here. Yeah. We would talk to uh, young professionals said who said, I went to Stephen F. Austin. I went and moved to Dallas and worked or some other city and worked. And then we came back and lived here. And I would talk, we would talk to older people and they loved it. And we said, this people love this town. And uh, that gave us confidence to yeah. stay here. But favorite-wise, other than Nacogdoches, I will say that's a tough question. Really, Greece is mm-hmm. uh, in our hearts. It's not because it was an easy place to live. Living in Athens was uh, could be a tough, right. tough city to live in. But the people um, mm. and the culture of Greece and being around Greek Orthodox, which is a very interesting, um, um, Christian, um, denomination, the second largest in the world. And, uh, just the, the things we learned, we were always attracted. I think maybe it's because it was our first overseas assignment, but we've, we've loved them all. Yeah. We, we loved, and we lived on Guam for three years, tiny little island in the middle of nowhere, uh, 12 miles long and five miles wide yeah yeah but somehow it gets under your skin yeah so there's just not one there's not one that's like that was awful we'll never that wish we weren't spent time there you just they were all great the only awful place um i was ever at that i don't ever want to return to was not an assignment where i took my family it was a little short notice assignment that i uh, had when i was a colonel i was asked to uh, fly off on 10 days notice to Kabul, okay afghanistan And uh, replace an individual out there for a few months, um, and this was at a rare, in a very rough. This was in 2011. Okay, yeah. Uh, right in, uh, I, I arrived in August, right before the 10 year anniversary of September 11, and and um, we were suffering a lot of attacks. Yeah. Um, at that time, from the Taliban, even in the in the city that we were located, I was working for the commander of mm-hmm. of the ISAF force in Afghanistan yeah. at that time, and. The embassy was right next to us, and we were we were just suffering a lot of uh, peripheral attacks. And a couple, about a week after I arrived there, we had a major attack that yeah. occurred that took about eighteen hours to wow. put down, and that began a very rough period, uh, but a growing period. I mean, yeah. God works all things out, and He. I hated being there, but He also grew me, and I would I ch- I wouldn't change it now. Yeah, yeah, I saw. I, I think I, it. I think I saw a photo of during of you during that time, and mm-hmm. I mean, you were outfitted in body armor and all the things. You know, um, that it's got to be, it's got to be a weird place to be in that moment, knowing how how dangerous a, an area that is, and you just don't know what could happen at any, any yeah. given time. It's I really um, empathize and admire 
military members who go far beyond just yeah. sitting in a compound in, in Kabul, Afghanistan, yeah. and yeah. have got had to gone out and actually do the rough stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, my hat goes off to veterans. I just, I think the world of them, and not because I'm one of them, but because I know what these men and women yeah. have done. You've got, you it's just got, I got a small taste of kind of what that could be like. And, and that, that being, you know, I, I've got friends who went on deployment and that was their entire life was that all the time, you know, and, and yeah. it's a struggle. And a lot of them still deal with that. It's, it's, a, it's they a do. Thing. That's the downside sometimes of military services. Uh, Fortunately, we're not in constant wars right now. It's it's actually a really good it's, time to yeah, be in military right. service um, because the deployment uh, deployments are way down right. generally. Not not so much for the Navy, but um, uh, it's it can be a rough thing to deal with uh, PTSD and some yeah. of the things you see. And uh, but at the same time, if you talk to most military veterans, I think they will tell you they wouldn't trade it. The, yeah. There was something about that yeah. bonding process or that that service process, serving uh, their country, mm-hmm. that really meant something. Yeah, it was significant in their lives. Mm-hmm. So, on a much lighter note, here I want to ask a, a question of the people. The people, what the people really want to know, <laughs> okay, okay, is now you've lived in a lot of different places. You lived in you lived in Greece. You've lived in islands. You've lived in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Where was the best food? Who oh, has the best food? Man. And because I'm sure your Somebody's, diet must yeah. have changed all the time based upon the region that you were in. Uh, like to go from island food to go from like what they eat in Greece, like that's totally different. And so, who has the best food? Of the places we lived, I would pick Greek food in a heartbeat. Uh, but German food comes close second. Hmm. The German, um, when I went to Germany with Lori and uh, our kids, we thought German food was sausages. sausages yeah. That's literally what sauerkraut. we thought. Sauerkraut. <laughs> we thought we'd be eating sausages and sauerkraut. We, yeah. That sounded didn't sound that interesting, but German cuisine was far more interesting. Wow. Bre- I mean, it, it's very, very good. But uh, Greek food, we still uh, cook at home quite often. But we we weren't picky. I mean, um, you really couldn't be. Hawaii has right. some of its own cuisine. Yeah. Uh, Japanese cuisine. <laughs> there was a lot of that. We just really loved as yeah. well. What's a traditional uh, German uh, dinner? Uh, well, schnitzel is the national uh, okay. uh, dish, and so you can get various uh, types of sh- what they call schnitzel, which is basically a, a breaded fried pork, but it's not nothing like we would do in the U.S. It's thin. It's it's uh, uh, cooked in butter, um, and, uh, and you can get a taste. You can go to a there's a couple of German restaurants in New Braunfels. Yeah, yeah. And if you want a taste of German food, you can really uh, get a taste of it. But so schnitzel is a big one. But um, Germans were very big on bread and salads, believe it or not. Hmm. So. Um, they would have uh, the I just called them uh, multi breads. They would it would be a big loaf of bread, and it was actually eight different kinds of bread. They would put eight blobs on a plate in a circle, and the blobs would all bake together. <laughs> and so you'd have eight different kinds of bread in a in a on a if you can imagine like on a big pizza, a right, large pizza yeah. pie uh, plate, and and you'd have uh, pumpkin seeds, and you'd have, I mean it, it just 
Uh, yummy. I'm hungry now. Yeah. Now. yeah. <laughs> hey, what time is it? <laughs> it's getting close to lunchtime. Hey, well, we're so uh, we're so glad that you joined us. I, I I have learned a lot about a, a lot of things today. Like, I am I am so amazed by God's pursuit of you. Uh, it, it is phenomenal. Yeah. Just, it, just it, it a sparks really neat story. my heart with joy. Um, you know, I'm currently 29 years old, uh, and to hear that at my age, God changed your life dramatically. Um, I don't know. It's just incredibly encouraging. So, yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I, as one who came to the Lord uh, at, uh, I was actually 30 when I actually came to the Lord. Uh, I'm really very passionate about the idea of witnessing to people, no matter how old they right, are, yeah, and and going after them with invitations and. Mm-hmm. And and no matter how frustrating it can get in a, in a church uh, to bring people to the Lord, sometimes you just it, it, I came because I was I was asked to come, mm. and asked and pursued and asked not and God pursued me, but so did God's people. Right. Yeah. And uh, so most of my uh, family members are not saved, even today. I have a couple of siblings that have come to the Lord in the time since then, but that's it. Yeah, and so I, I'm kind of passionate about keep after people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. don't give up on them just because uh, they become hardened. They will become hard. They become harder and harder and harder as they get older and older. But it's still possible. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good word for a whole church. If you're yeah. sitting here listening to this podcast. Uh, invite your friend to church and cook them a German cuisine afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we say this almost every time we have a guest, but it seems like we've only scratched the surface and uh, we appreciate you sharing what you've shared. And we were talking before the podcast, you know, it's been really neat to see um, how these stories have sparked other conversations and relationships within within our church. And, and, and I'm sure Stephen would be thrilled if you came up to him and asked him about some of this stuff and got to know him. Uh, we're so thankful that you and Lori are in our our, our church family now, and just excited to see what's in the future. So thank you very much for, for sitting down with John and I today. To, You're welcome. Uh, to it have was this a, conversation. It was a great pleasure talking yeah. to you guys. Hey, well, we are uh, not too far away from our Q&A episode. We've got a handful of questions, um, but we need more. So make sure to send those to us at stc at fredoniahill.org. John and I, we mentioned about uh, doing some sort of social media questionnaire thing. We'll, we will do that. So Follow us on Instagram, uh, John and I, or uh, the church's Instagram. When we get a little bit closer to that, we will post that up, and we will take your questions there as well. But if you have them now, we could go ahead and we'll go ahead and take those. I'll compile those up, and uh, we've got some good ones so far, and we're excited about that. Any other thoughts on that, John? Man, I'm excited about that episode. Um, I think every morning I wake up, and before my feet hit the floor, I think that Q and A episode's that's, coming. That's I the- just can't. I can't wait. <laughs> It's the only thought I have as soon as I wake up in the morning. So okay. I cannot wait for this episode. So don't let John down for, for this uh, for this episode. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, we hope you have a great day. Hey, we've got a, uh, a check-in episode with Kendall here pretty soon, either next week or the week after that. And uh, I'll just say I've, I've been in contact with him. He is He's still alive, and he's, uh, he's not gone stir-crazy yet, and so... Uh, I'm excited to hear what he's uh, been up to on uh, the last few weeks. So uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next time. See you all.